All right, let's gather and get ready to learn. We're moving into Acts chapter 10. And our passage is Acts 10, 1 through 16. To give you a little preview of where this is all going, we're going to see a lot of miracles and supernatural events that happen for the purpose of creating table fellowship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And this is not an easy thing. And a lot of the book of Acts really is about this. I was talking to someone a little bit before we started, and this is about the house of Cornelius, the angels, the visions, the various things that are going on. But this doesn't get resolved very quickly. If you want to read ahead in Acts, they end up having a council in Acts 15 to determine are the Gentile Christians under the Jewish law or not. And even once that was settled, and Paul went on his missionary journeys, if you look ahead to Acts 21, there, there were some Jewish Christians, and James had to warn Paul when he got there in Acts 21, and they, wanted, they eventually wanted Paul dead. The Jewish Christians. So this isn't easy. This idea that we have to be separate and we have to keep the traditions of the elders is a hard thing to be rid of. Could I have someone read our text, Acts 10, 1 through 16? Eric, that other Eric back there, I'll let you save your voice. Acts 10, 1 through 16? Yes, please. Okay, Okay, uh, Acts 10, 1 through 16. Now... There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius... And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left... He summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance 
and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Amen. Dear Lord, we ask you to help us understand what you said, what you want us to understand through your word. May we take it to heart and know better your ways. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, now I have a little different map because Caesarea, Joppa, we talked about Lydda in Acts 9. So you see how Joppa is is, uh, south of Caesarea along the Mediterranean. And so take note of that. There's your geography, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, one of the things that we need to know about Luke-Acts, two-volume work, one of the really, I, I think, important in, things to know in Luke-Acts is that Luke always, or I would say nearly always, there may be some exceptions, gives us biographical data about people concerning their spiritual condition. Okay, you see that all the way back in Luke 1, like Zacharias or Simeon. And Luke is telling us that this is someone to pay attention to. God is going to use them, or there are somebody that are going, that's going to say something that we need to take note of. Simeon's prophecy, by the way, way back, sets the stage for Luke Acts about what God is going to do. And so learning the Bible really has a lot to do with learning to read. Okay? There's no secret meaning to the Bible. God used the biblical authors to tell us his inerrant and infallible word. But what God is saying is not different than what he said through Luke or Mark or Matthew or John or James or Paul or Peter. Now, why this? Why the fact that the fellows devout, feared God, gave alms to the Jewish people? So there was no prejudice on his part against the Jews, obviously. Prayed to God continually. The word devout, you see base, 
means pious in a good sense. He's devout, he's God-fearing, and interestingly, I point here to Luke 7, 1 through 10, there was a centurion who was described favorably. Then later in Acts, at the time, there was a centurion again that has is favorable. It's not that there's anything particular about centurions, but in Luke Acts, they tend to be somebody that God uses. See, Eric, could you look at Luke 7, 1 through 10? We may not have to read all that, but could you just yourself look in there and see what happens? I think there's a centurion described favorably. And while Eric is looking that up, I'm going to cite Longenecker, who's another commentary I reference that gives us some geographical information that fills in some things about Caesarea. Okay, quote, formerly Caesarea was called Strato's Tower and was considered a second-class harbor because of its shallow entrance and openness to the strong southern winds. But in carrying out his pro-Roman policy, Herod the Great changed all that by making the harbor into a magnificent seaport, still quoting Longenecker, and the village into a provincial capital. He deepened the harbor, built a breakwater against the southern gates, constructed an imposing city with an amphitheater, a temple in honor of Rome and Augustus, brought in fresh water through an aqueduct that ran over stately brick arches, established a garrison, so on and so forth. And uh, that's the end of my quote. There's, There's more here. But the fact is, this was a magnificent city by the time of the apostles. And it's pretty amazing what ancient people could do with their engineering. It really is amazing. If you've been to Israel, you learn about some of these things. Okay. And one of the things you do learn is that Luke is accurate in what he says. Luke gives a lot of details in Luke Acts. In almost every case, the more we learn about history from other sources, turns out Luke was correct. Now, when it comes to other religious documents, this isn't true. In fact, a lot of times there's no relationship to reality. The Book of Mormon, for example, is nothing but science fiction. Okay? There's not one reason to believe any of it. So liberals used to try to claim that the Bible's so full of errors and historical inaccuracies, nobody would believe it. Well, then they've been disproven again and again and again. They said there was no person named Pilate. Well, now they know there was. And that it became such a really bad line of reasoning. They pretty well dropped it, the liberals. And then they were always claiming there could not have been a resurrection from the dead simply because there are no such things as miracles. But then that just kind of fell apart too because the evidence for the resurrection is so strong. So now what liberalism does is they go into utter mysticism. 
Don't deny anything. Just say reality is a state of mind. That's emergent. So you want to believe in historicity? That's fine, but it's not important. What's important is meditation so you can connect with the all. The fact is, emergent, for example, is just simply what liberalism is now. When I was a young man, liberals denied everything. That's why I left Christianity till I was converted. Now they just say, whatever you believe, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Just tune in to the vibes of the universe. Okay, just get into a meditative state and then you'll find out. What did you learn, Eric, about, oops, excuse me, about Luke 7, 1 yeah, to 10? A, just what's the main point, particularly concerning the, the centurion? Yeah, the centurion's a devout man because he's a man of faith. He says, Lord, I'm not even worthy of having you underneath my rooftop. If you tell me the word, remember his servant was ill yes. and near death. Well, he just simply says, look, I'm a man under authority, and I know that if you give the word, it'll be done. And Jesus marvels and says, there's not even such faith that he's seen in all of Israel. And so it shows us that what pleases God ultimately, he doesn't care if you're a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. What he cares about is faith. Yes. That's what pleases him. And in Luke 7, later there's the woman that comes and weeps on Jesus' feet. One of the fantastic things that happened to me in my entire life of doing ministry is the sacred privilege of preaching and teaching through Luke Acts. And in God's providence, I didn't even begin to do that until I got the material I need to understand it properly. And I thank God for the people that provide the material that we need. So Luke is telling us who to listen to or who God is going to use, or who is a reliable witness. He'll also tell us when people have bad motives and when they're full of pride and things to avoid. Let me just give you an example. You can turn if you want, if you have your Bible open. Luke 2, and I'm going to read 25 through 32. This is one of the more important little statements in Luke X. And one of the things I want to do as I teach Luke Acts is to make sure you're equipped to be able to do this and understand it. Because I know the Lord is always going to raise up more teachers. And I thank God for good teachers I had who told me the truth. And I, I want other people maybe to learn from this. So here, if you want to know Luke Acts, who are the reliable witnesses? One of the ways that Luke tells us that somebody is a reliable witness, the Holy Spirit comes on them. Oh, yes. Peter, the Holy Spirit comes on him. Acts 2, he preaches the truth, even though he was confused not too long before that. Look at this one, Luke 2.25. To the end here, I'll read it. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Notice what it said about Simeon, righteous and devout. What does it say about Cornelius? Devout. Looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, if you're an astute reader, 
of Luke X, what do you know? This is important. God's going to tell us something we need to know through a man who's devout and the Holy Spirit came on him. 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. Now there's the third time in three verses the Holy Spirit's mentioned into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Notice he called himself a bondservant. He's humble. Notice the centurion that Eric read about or told us about was humble. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And so we're seeing, if we're reading well, this is important. Something that this man is going to say is going to reveal to us God's ways and what he's going to do. Okay, so he took him in his arm, blessed God, and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes, I'm thinking of the King James, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So here's a devout Jew knowing that God's salvation is in the presence of all peoples. Isn't that great? A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There is something that we're going to need to remember until we're all done to the end of Acts. It's thematic. So Simeon's prophecy is what God is doing. Okay, so do you see that? So Cornelius is a Gentile, having realized probably the bankruptcy of paganism, sought to worship the monotheistic God, according to Longenecker, practiced a form of prayer. He wanted to lead a moral life, and he had not become a convert to temple Judaism. But he loved the monotheistic God of the Bible. So sometimes scholars would call this a God-fearing Gentile. Okay? So Simeon predicted all the way back in Luke 2 there would be a Gentile mission. God predicted this in Isaiah in different places, particularly chapter 49, Isaiah predicted a gen- light to the Gentiles. And that's what God is doing. So in, in Acts 10, 3 and 4, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision, this is Cornelius, an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius called him by name, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Wow. So now we have a key person in this narrative who not only is described as pious and God-fearing, but now there's an angelic visitation. Now it does say in a vision, but there's an objectivity to this. Later we'll see that this angel actually comes in and goes out. It's a real angel who appears to this Cornelius. Now, if you're an astute reader of Luke Acts, you'll be thinking back. Angels appeared to whom early on in Luke? Shepherds. Good answer. And shepherds were considered unclean. Why? Because just the nature of their job, they weren't able to be very fastidious about keeping the law. There you go. I knew there was a word. <laughs> now, if anybody else is over 60, you ever notice that you're trying to think of something and about two minutes later, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, the different gifts in the body of Christ and how some have teaching, some have, you know, wisdom, some have knowledge, some encouragement. And I was thinking, you know, the obedience to God within the different gifts. I know God gives us each, you know, I think a portion of each. You know, I think all of us have encouraged, all of us have, you know, have knowledge, all of us. But it's, I was thinking, you know, how sometimes it's God himself, I think, has kept me from, you know, sometimes studying his word and just gaining full knowledge of it just because that's not a gift that he gave me. But I was just kind of thinking in, in terms of the grace he gives us, you know, we should study the word, you know, to the best of our, you know, ability that he gives us to do that. But, you know, and, and same with encouragement, you know, to the best of the ability that he gives us to do, we should, you know, we should obey God. But I was just kind of thinking about personal effort to, you know, in versus God's grace. You know, we, we can't do anything by personal effort, but as his grace works through us, then our personal effort is... Going to do something. Well, let me tell you, Eric, something that I think is a great gift that God gives us, a love for the truth, okay? It's already there, okay? It's already here. Yeah. But if you don't love the truth, then you don't care. I've had a number of examples of this. Well, a good one is that debate I had with Greg Boyd, okay? So I put up verses, explain the verses, explain God's ways, explain the gospel. And here's a guy, two PhDs, 14 books. I'm just this whatever guy. And I only ended up in the debate because the guy that was supposed to debate him backed out the last minute, so they put me in there. But one thing I knew is that the Bible's true. And I knew I could show the people what the Bible says. And so I just kept doing it. I didn't care. He would come up with his philosophical arguments claiming God can't do this, God can't do that, God can't do this. If God did that, then he'd be an evil God, so he obviously didn't do it. It has to be this way. And he went on and on with his philosophy, 
And then I'd say, well, God said this, God said this, God said that. And what this other fellow, in my opinion, was lacking was a love for the truth. And he privately told me, you have a lot of good biblical arguments. (laughs) But he would not accept anything the Bible said that disagreed with his philosophy. And his philosophy told him God doesn't know the future. At least certain aspects of it. Here's the takeaway I want us to get. It says in Thessalonians, they did not. Why were they deceived? They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. To receive there, it can be translated welcome. Sometime I'll write an article about this. Okay, when the truth comes to us, it creates a crisis. Okay, because we're all deceived by the lie until we're converted, right? John eight forty four and so on. So the truth comes to us. The Holy Spirit, yes. I'm always agreeing on this point with Luther. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. The, Holy, the truth comes. Are we going to welcome it? Or are we going to become angry because it's telling us something we don't want to hear because it contradicts our prejudices? It contradicts our philosophical priorities. It contradicts whatever. And if God, and he'll give this to us, I believe, it comes with the gospel a love for the truth. If you have that, then you want to find out the best reading because you know what, then you know what the Holy Spirit said. And it's revolutionary. But if you don't love the truth, then you're going to figure out ways to argue against it. Let me give you an example from this morning. This morning, opened up an email. You're mentioned too in it, Eric. Lucky you. This guy was rebuking us for not keeping Sabbath like the Old Testament Jews did. And, oh, so you're only going to keep nine of the commandments. Well, we've done all this work to show that if you refuse to come to Christ, you're a Sabbath breaker. Days of worship are a matter of Christian liberty. So here's what he said. You guys need to pray long and hard about this. Okay. Are you listening to me? I know what the Holy Spirit said in Matthew 11, Matthew 12, Hebrews 4. Pray long and hard. So what does that mean? If I pray for two days, would suddenly then I'd be deceived like this guy? I'm going to write him back and tell him, you can pray forever. And Sabbath is still fulfilled in Christ. And days of worship are still Christian liberty because that's what God said by the Holy Spirit. What did they used to say? I think, is it Mormons? Who was it? It says, if you get a burning in your bosom, then you know the Book of Mormon is true or whatever. No, here's the deal. See Caesarea there? Right up there, I'm pointing, if you're on the tape up on the map. I've been there. Hey, do anybody else when you went to Israel? It's a beautiful place. Been there. 
You can't do that with the Book of Mormon. I don't care how burning your bosom is when you're praying, like they say. Caesarea is still right there on the Mediterranean where the Holy Spirit told us it was through Luke. And the Book of Mormon is still a myth. That will never change. So those who believe in Mormonism need to repent and believe the gospel. Some have, like Ed Decker. Okay. So, a love for the truth. So, what happens here, verses 3 and 4, about the ninth hour of the day, saw this vision. So he's going to be a key person. He was alarmed, literally, in fear, phalos, and there's a remembrance. So that's another key word. It's an important thing. When God tells us to remember something, it's very good. Aren't we supposed to remember the Lord's death till he comes? And so on. So this is 3 p.m. The angel literally comes in. And so this is an important person. And his piety is very much like that that of, of something the Jews would praise, would consider praiseworthy. So this is a little bit, quote, easier. It always takes the work of the Holy Spirit. But think of Luke 7. There was a, a centurion there. And then there's a woman. So they're having a banquet. Jesus is there. And an immoral prostitute woman comes into the banquet and starts weeping on his feet. Now that's hard. That's going to make it difficult. So what happens then is that's a big bar. We're supposed to believe God will save you immoral prostitutes? Well, the answer is yes. But that's hard to do. They did. They got angry. But that just shows their heart. Jesus told her, your sins are forgiven. But here, this is for the whole church to learn something. By using someone here who would be considered pious even by the Jews, the bar isn't quite as high. Well, maybe God would use somebody like that. Now, there's an issue. Now, Tannehill has some good material on that. But here's an issue. They've already been getting used to the idea that God will save people they wouldn't suspect. He already saved Samaritans, right? They hated them, but God saved them. He already saved... Ethiopian eunuch who was sent to the ends of the earth. But see, he went to the ends of the earth. They don't have to worry about food laws with him. Whatever he's eating, wherever he goes, it's none of their problem. He's not here. But now God is going to save people and put them into the same kind of fellowship with the Jewish Christians. And so there's a big problem now. It's one thing to believe God would actually save a Gentile. They knew about Jonah. He went to Nineveh. God saved the Ninevites. But they stayed in Nineveh, and they didn't come and bother us. Now we're going to actually have to show up with these people and sit down at table fellowship, have the Lord's Supper together. Yikes! This is not easy. So to get that to happen, God's gives a vision to Cornelius. He gives a vision 
to Peter. He does a series of miracles and he brings them together. That's what we're going to see here. And I could say this. How would we apply this today? We already know that God can save anything, anyone, I mean, and that we should be in, all be in fellowship. But here's something we can know. I don't believe there's any new revelation beyond Scripture that's binding on any, anybody, but God still works through providence. He still arranges circumstances. He still gets us to the right place at the right time. And he still gives us the right message when we get to the right place with the right time, which is the gospel. And I believe God is all powerful and he's still working. But I don't believe in new revelations. We already know now God can save anybody. And whoever he does save, we have to receive into table fellowship and extend the hand of fellowship to them. And they become one of us. And we must love one another. We must care for one another. We must protect one another. It doesn't matter where we came from. It doesn't matter how sinful the past was. It's not wrong to say it's all under the blood. When someone calls me, occasionally I've gotten a call from someone who there were some big problems in the past over whatever. And they say, well, they would try to want to make peace. I always say this, it's all under the blood. Me, uh, so I was just going to say, uh, I was thinking that something that was confusing to me was the two kinds of revelation. Because I know in Ezekiel it said, you know, whoever prophesies in those days, you know, his close friend is, they'll say, what's this wound? They'll say, you that's your close friend. And, you know, God said there's not going to be prophets in our days. But on the other hand, there's, you know, it talks in the New Testament about if one receives a revelation, then the others, you know, should, in talking about in the church how orderly and how God, he does still teach us, you know, even if it's through his word, even if it's through, you know, a, a pastor or a teacher. But that, I, you know, it's, it's also called a revelation. It's just not in the same sense of. It's not a new binding revelation, but it's an application of what we already have. We, what's a remarkable to me is that Luther understood this so well. Because, see, the Pope was claiming the ability to give new binding revelation beyond Scripture, and he made the traditions of men binding on the consciences of Christians. And Luther said no, and was so revolutionary as to say anyone in the church that has the truth can prophesy concerning the mighty deeds of God, priesthood of every believer, and if the Pope's wrong, anybody can say, Pope, you're wrong. Be silent in the church. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. And prophesying is ultimately gospel preaching. How do we declare the marvelous deeds of God? Sometime you want to go back and look back at First Corinthians 14. Peter says, we're, we're priests, the priest of every believer, a holy people, holy nation, to declare the praises of God. I interpret that with Luther to mean the mighty deeds of God, because that's how you declared his praises in Psalms. God did this, God did this, God 
brought us out of Egypt. God sent the manna. May his name be praised. Holy be his name. So on. That's praising God. Declaring his mighty deeds. And Luther said, it says in 1 Corinthians 14, if you all prophesy, two by three, someone comes in who's an unbeliever, he'll fall on his face and declare, God is among you. And that, Luther said, is what gospel preaching ideally does. His sins will be revealed to him. It's not somebody saying, oh, the Lord told me you uh, drove over 55. (laughs) No, it's declaring the mighty deeds of God in Christ. And the unbeliever knows I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm going to hell. I need Christ. That's what happens. Let me go on here. I want to stay on this. Okay, so let's go to verse 5 and 6. Now dispatch, this is the angel, some men to Joppa, down, and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. So, God intervened supernaturally, to fulfill his purposes, or his purpose revealed earlier. We already saw Luke 2.32. Eric, could you look up this Eric here? Luke 24.47. Eric, back there, do you have the mic? Who wants to read Acts 1.8? Anybody? Okay. And then... Somebody look up Acts 2.39 and be ready to read that, too. Okay, 2.32, I already read. Eric, 24.47. It says, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All right, so Jesus told the apostles that forgiveness, did it say forgiveness? Yep, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Yeah, for repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Okay, forgiveness of sins. In Luke X, linked to being delivered from Satan's domain and brought into the kingdom of God. So, if we don't have anything about forgiveness of sins, we're worthless. I kid you not. If there's no forgiveness of sins, then why do we call ourselves a church? And if we don't have that as part of our message, we're worthless. We're false prophets. And some people won't preach forgiveness of sins because they don't want to admit there are any sins. Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Yes, that's thematic. And then the next one I want is 239. Uh, Oh, somebody's got it back there, sorry. 239. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Amen. Exactly right. So... This was already spoken. So why does it take angels, visions, messengers, traveling, miracles, 
to get Peter to go to the household of Cornelius. And then when he gets there, oh, well, I better preach to them. I guess I'm here, right? And then after it happens, which everybody should have known God said it was going to happen, Peter preached it, Acts 2.39. The apostles want to know what's going on. The apostles in Jerusalem, what are you doing? You had table fellowship with Gentiles? Unclean. What's the Greek word for unclean? Akathartos? Remember the lepers had to go yelling it out in case anybody would get any close to them? Imagine spending your whole life yelling out, unclean, unclean, unclean. They all go running when you come by. That was the lepers. You better go running because if they get too close to you, then you'll be unclean and you got a lot of work to do to ever get clean again. So God cleanses the unclean. He cleanses the Gentiles. Eric, uh, look at Isaiah 49, 6, and then I want you to comment on it because you, you know a lot about Isaiah, so you can tell us. Yeah, Isaiah 49, 6, it says, It is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> What's very interesting about that is originally... A lot of Jews thought this applied to Israel only. But what's very interesting is by the time you get to the suffering servant passages in Isaiah 52, it becomes very apparent that the one who's going to do this is the suffering servant. In fact, back in Isaiah 40, he's revealed as the arm of Yahweh. And the arm of Yahweh brings salvation. When we get to Isaiah 53, it's personified in the suffering servant. So the suffering servant is the one who's going to bring salvation, not just to the tribes of Jacob to Israel, but it's to the Gentile world as well. Right. Now, some of the scholars try to say, well, that was just Israel. Right. But that doesn't work. Right. And some said it was Isaiah, but that doesn't work. Right. Turns out it's Messiah. Right. And the way we know that is because when you get to Isaiah 53, it says, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? And then the very next verse, in verse 2, it says, He grew up in front of us like a tender shoot. There was nothing about him that we should be drawn to him. So there, the arm of Yahweh is now personified in the suffering servant. And so he has to be the one that brings salvation, not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. Amen. So Isaiah 49, 6. Um, years ago, I used to call this the Great Commission in the Old Testament. Dr. David Peterson says, quote, what needed to be resolved for Peter was not whether the gospel was for Gentiles, and we just read verses, so they knew that, but how they could receive it in view of their uncleanness in Jewish eyes and be one with the Jewish believers in the fellowship of the church. Now, Let's just reiterate this and get it clear in our minds. The uncleanness, if you understand what that all entailed, if you add what was said in the law plus the traditions that surrounded that, if you became unclean, it was a big problem. 
right? It was a lot of work to ever get clean again. And you had to go through a process of ritual purity. Now, uncleanness under the Old Covenant is not synonymous with sinfulness. You can be unclean without having transgressed any moral law. Not that we aren't all sinners that have transgressed the law, but unclean was a different category than sinful. Unclean meant you had to stay separate and get cleansed. Now, a lot of things made you unclean. You go read Leviticus. A woman's menstrual cycle would make her unclean. It's, yeah, so it's not, yeah, her skin, eczema, things that we have cortisone for now. There's a lot of things that make you unclean, including in contact with death. So the tanner, for example, in God's irony here to help us learn, Simon's staying with the house of a t- in a house of a tanner. The Jews consider tanners unclean, 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 unclean. Why? Well, for one thing, they're working with dead animals. Death, 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 death. Another thing, really nasty process. Another thing, it stunk. <laughs> Probably the reason the tanner was by the sea trying to get some air into the house. <laughs> trying to do something with all these skins. So shepherds are unclean because they were not around doing all the things you're supposed to do and tanners are unclean and lepers are unclean. Unclean everywhere. So here's Gentiles, unclean, unclean, unclean. And the lesson is easy to see for us, but let it sink into your heart and mind how revolutionary this was. The lesson that's going to happen is God is going to say to Peter, don't call anything unclean that I've cleansed. And cleansing under the new covenant is once for all. You can write that down. Once for all. Hopox in the Greek. Once for all. Thematic in Hebrews. Think about it. Put yourself into that world. You spent most of your life trying to get rid of being unclean only to get unclean again. Trying to get rid of being unclean, you get unclean again. Trying to get rid of unclean, you get unclean again. And you do that forever until you die. And when you die, then you're really unclean because you got a dead body. What did Jesus do? He went and touched someone who was dead. The woman with an issue of blood, perpetually unclean. What did she do? She touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Unclean, 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 unclean. We can't get rid of it. We can't get rid of it. And we're sure not going to sit down at these tables with a bunch of Gentiles because then we'll be unclean. And God is going to say, don't say that. Do not call unclean, says the Lord, what I've cleansed. Eric in the back. Yeah, I was thinking of just to emphasize what you're saying. You know, God's wrath burned against Israel in the Old Testament when they made alliances with Gentile nations 
you know, I don't think we really can even understand in this, uh, we live in a culture where we celebrate this valueless concept called diversity, <laughs> which that's a whole other subject, but I don't think we can really fathom how it, it was enormously necessary for God to emphasize this because any good Jewish person would have really been absolutely appalled at associating with the Gentile. Despite, they were. Despite all of this. And so God really, he really wanted to teach them, you know, very clearly. You're right, Eric. This was Eric Fredrickson. We've got somebody Eric's here. If I say Eric, all the hands go up. Um, think about this one. In Galatians. Now, Peter is the one God chose to make the point person for this whole issue. Peter is the one that had to go and justify to the Jerusalem apostles that we have table fellowship with Gentiles who are saved. They had a council over this. Peter got up and spoke, Acts 15. But it was so hard to really get this that in Galatians, Peter fell. Can you imagine that? Now it's said, now you talk through Mark. Isn't it true that Peter was considered the source for Mark? There's a parenthetical comment. Do you want to go look that up? You just preached on it. In Mark 7. You probably got it memorized. In Mark 7, it says, and therefore he declared all foods clean. And Mark was the one that wrote that, and Peter probably told him that. Peter learned it through a vision, which we may get to if I get going here. And in Galatians, he went back to, I won't eat with the Gentiles. This was like a lifetime of avoiding the Gentiles forever and ever. Just avoid, avoid, avoid. And Peter fell back into it, and Paul had to come and rebuke him to his face, say, no, no, no. And then Peter got it right. Peter repented. So what about us? I think we, one thing, we've got to think of the applications that we have to think about. We can't let our natural inclinations and prejudice, prejudice just means prejudge, okay? And we would like to have a real nice Christian environment everywhere we go. But did God promise that we'd have that? No. I'm going to review a book that's claiming we need that, and I'm going to rebuke the guy. We don't need that. Our evangelists, God bless you, dear evangelists. I love you. It's amazing what you do. Our evangelists go right on into the Somali Mall. Well, why not? Why not? We don't know who God's going to save. The gospel is supposed to go to everyone. Our evangelists don't go into that mall and come out unclean. Do you? No. You go in with the joy of the Lord and you come out with the joy of the Lord. It didn't go away. I've only been one place in my life where if I was subjective at all, I would have thought I was unclean. <laughs> well, I haven't been there, so I don't know, but I can... Let me tell you a worse one. Somebody said New Orleans. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Has anybody been in there? If there's any place where evil is focused in one place, 
It seemed like it was there. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Oh, and these people with these black robes? They have black robes and smoke and incense and darkness. And there's Greek Orthodox and Catholics, and it's like they're having some kind of a war between who can mourn the most and who's the most pathetic. And somebody says, ah, ah. And our tour guide, the one from America that's a Christian, said, a lot of people consider this place demonic, so I'm just forewarning you. That's the worst place I've been. But you know what? It didn't change me. I still had the blood of Jesus washing away my sins. And we went from there to the Gordon's Calvary, and we heard the gospel, and there was light, and there was joy, and there was good news. And you're trying to tell me these Catholic and Orthodox monks are pleasing God? They don't, if they had salvation, what would they have? The joy of salvation. It's not there. It's gone. There's no joy of salvation. Misery and horror going on for centuries and centuries. I don't mind rebuking that. Run from it, or if you know whatever language they have, tell them to repent and believe the gospel. So the angel, verse 7 and 8, who was speaking to him, had left. See, this was objective, a real angel actually standing there. Then he leaves. He summoned two of his servants, a devout soldier, of those who were his personal attendants. The centurion was an important person in the military. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Go. He obeys God. So they're going to solve a key problem for the Jerusalem church to receive redeemed Gentiles in the fellowship. God works supernaturally to bring about his preordained purpose, but he uses people. That's what thing we have to get through our heads if we're going to know Christian theology. God providentially is in charge of all things. All things in Romans 8.28 is literal. And we might think, well, it's all, God's in charge of all things, so he's just going to do what he's going to do, and it's all going to happen. And we might be tempted to be fatalistic. But here's the thing. God delights to use people and has said that he will. He used the centurion. He used Peter. He uses the other apostles. He uses us. God gets you and I. Dear brothers and sisters, this is a lesson. God uses you and I, and he gets us to the right place at the right time with the right message to fulfill his purposes. And it's not based on how great we are. It's based on how great he is. Amen. I was just going to say, uh, I remember a quote that Paul said, uh, according to the grace he gave me, it's how he presented the gospel. I can't remember the exact quote. And I was... That's it. God gives us grace. And we just make our decisions. And Dr. Boyd was wrong. This isn't fatalistic. I'm just making decisions. 
I'm sitting there studying and back in whatever year, 2005. I think the next book I'll preach through is Luke. Why not? I'll just do that. So I preached in Luke. Little did I know that Luke Acts was going to be life-changing for me. I think I'll preach on 1 John. I don't know. I'm just deciding that. There's no angel came to me like Cornelius said, Yea, Bob, thou shalt preach 1 John. <laughs> no, but it needs to be preached. It's in the Bible. And God's using that. God will use whatever as you go. Just have the message of the gospel. Know what it is. Know what God said. Be assured of that. And then God will use you and you and you and you. He will. He does. He is. 9 and 10 of Acts 10. On the next. Oh, my. That hour went so fast. For me, I don't know about for you. Acts 10, 9 and 10, let's introduce this. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, so God did all these things, and the guy obeys and sends his servants, and Peter went on the housetop the sixth hour to pray, not the normal time for prayer, but he became hungry, was desiring to eat. Peter wasn't looking for anything special to happen. He just went up to pray and wanted to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. I'll just quick do this, and we'll go back to it next week. And he saw the sky opened, an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures, birds of the air, by the way, kind of a litany of what God created in Genesis 1. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Well, that's not a good thing to say. And a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And you probably know what happens. What in the world? Unclean? Eat what? Lobsters, pigs. Well, anyhow, here comes some guys that show up. Oh, we're supposed to come here, an angel talked to our master. Oh, okay, well, God's at work to fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to participate in this amazing process of fulfilling your purpose of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Lord. And may we, as we know and see and understand what you said, may we also be obedient to take the action that's required. Help us to have boldness and confidence to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for being here, for celebrating the resurrection of Christ. We'll see you upstairs.